A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The sixth and of creation last arose with evening harps and matin, when God said, Let the earth bring forth soul living in her kind, cattle and creeping things, and beast of the earth each in their kind. The earth obeyed, and straight opening her fertile womb, teemed at a birth in numerous living creatures, perfect forms limbed and full-grown. Out of the ground uprose as from his lair the wild beast, where he wands in forest wild, in thicket, brake, or den. Among the trees in pairs they rose, they walked, the cattle in the fields and meadows green, those rare and solitary, these in flocks, pasturing at once, and in broad herds upsprung. The grassy clods now carved, now half appeared the tawny lion, pawing to get free his hinder parts, then springs as broke from bonds, and rampant shakes his brinded mane. The ounce, the libard, and the tiger, as the mole rising, the crumbled earth above them threw in hillocks. The swift stag from underground bore up his branching head. Scarce from his mould, Behemoth, biggest born of earth, upheaved his vastness. Fleeced the flocks and bleating rose as plants. Ambiguous between sea and land, the river horse and scaly crocodile. Of all the great English poets, John Milton is the hardest to love. He was literally a Puritan, a member of the religious faction who famously banned Christmas when they came to power after the English Civil War. In Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, there is a memorable scene where Sir Toby Belch is being told off for being drunk and disorderly by Malvolio, who is described in the play as a kind of Puritan. So when Malvolio reprimands Sir Toby, Toby's comeback is, Dost thou think, because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? Now, this is a caricature of Puritanism, but it's a fair bet that cakes and ale were not high on Milton's list of priorities. And he was very concerned with being virtuous and also with making us virtuous too. And this is the big problem with Paradise Lost for many readers because Milton says right at the beginning of the poem that he's writing it to improve us, to justify the ways of God to man. 
In other words, he's going to explain to us why there is suffering in the world, why there is evil and death in the world, and why it's our fault and not God's. And he's going to write as many lines of iambic pentameter as it takes, which in this case was about 10,000, to drum it into our skulls. And what a lot of people have objected to over the centuries is that he seems to be on the side of God and morality and virtue rather than the side of humanity. Because for Milton, human fallibility is the big problem, as he explains when he tells us about the fall of Adam and Eve. And of course, Eve gets most of the blame even making allowances for the sexist culture of his time, Milton's attitude to women comes across as profoundly misogynistic. So it's hard to warm to Milton. It's hard to love him, maybe in the way that we might feel we love Shakespeare or Chaucer or Wordsworth. I had to read Paradise Lost 30 years ago, and I've hardly looked at it since. And yet, I've recently opened it and started having second thoughts about Milton. Because if he's difficult to love, then there's still plenty to admire in his poetry, and even, dare I say it, to enjoy. Turning again to the first page of Paradise Lost, I was blown away by his sheer ambition. So, as is traditional, at the beginning of an epic poem, he invokes the muse, the divine source of poetry, and says, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song, that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. I mean, come on. <laughs> we have to admire the guy's boldness here. This is someone who has read pretty much all the great poetry ever written up to this point. And not just in English. I'm talking Latin, Greek, Hebrew, etc. He's read Homer. He's read Virgil, Ovid, Dante, Shakespeare, the Bible. And he says that he wants to do something that none of them ever even attempted. <laughs> so I think we've got to give him 11 out of 10 for ambition. So, inspired by reading this, I cranked up the audiobook version of Paradise Lost, read by Anton Lesser, an amazing Shakespearean actor who really knows how to read verse properly. And I found myself transported. Whatever you think of the man, the poetry is absolutely magnificent. And I actually think Milton pretty well succeeds at what he set out to do. You know, he says he intends to soar, and he really does. There is a lofty, awe-inspiring, celestial quality to the verse. And some of it is even quite moving on a human level. There were some scenes I'd forgotten about where he does display a bit of genuine empathy and pity for Adam and Eve and their suffering. And Satan, of course, is fantastic. <laughs> It's a cliché of Paradise Lost criticism that Milton has unwittingly given Satan all the best lines. William Blake famously said that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. 
because Milton is supposed to be on the side of God and the angels. But actually, his portrayal of Satan is so full of energy and charisma when he says things like, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to hear echoes of Milton's own rebellious streak. You know, first he was on the side of the rebellion against Charles I, but later on he could also be an outspoken critic of the Republic when he thought it was overreaching its power. So I never thought I would ever go through Paradise Lost from beginning to end again, but thanks to Anton Lesser, I have. I wouldn't quite say I've had a road to Damascus experience. I still have some very strong reservations about Milton. But I'm going to propose a new category which allows me to appreciate him on his own terms, and that is the category of the bonus great poet. So these are poets who are easily overlooked because they're a bit niche a bit eccentric or too much associated with the fashion of their time that is completely unfashionable now. I'm talking about poets such as Edmund Spencer, Alexander Pope and, of course, Milton. And the way I propose we treat the bonus great poet is that most of the time we forget about them. But every so often we remember they exist. We go over to the bookshelf And we take the book down and we open it and we go, hmm, actually, this is really good. I wouldn't want to read it every day. I can't go the whole hog in terms of their worldview or even their aesthetic. But there is much to enjoy here. And why shouldn't I enjoy it once in a while? A bit like having a liqueur on Christmas Day, even though I hardly ever drink liqueur. And I realise Milton wouldn't be happy about being compared to a Christmas liqueur, but I think he's going to have to meet me halfway on this. And that's how he and I can find a rapprochement. Okay, now that we have established cordial relations, let's have a closer look at Paradise Lost. So, remember, last month I was talking about the three basic types of poetry. We've got dramatic poetry like the verse drama of Shakespeare and Marlowe that we've been listening to recently. We also have the lyric, which is typically shorter and more musical, and especially these days, more personal and reflective. And then we have the epic, which is about storytelling on a grand scale, involving adventure and heroism and the supernatural and the divine. And in Paradise Lost, Milton is very self-consciously using the conventions of epic poetry. As we've seen, he begins with the traditional invocation of the muse. And the idea is that the poet is really looking to channel divine inspiration. So, as well as the invocation to the muse, the opening lines of Paradise Lost contain another epic convention, and that's the statement of the poem's theme and a summary of the plot. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse. 
So he's going to tell us the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, famously eating the apple, which was the one thing they weren't supposed to do, and discovering knowledge of good and evil, bringing sin and death into the world, and yet being redeemed by the arrival of the Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Milton has clearly read his Homer and his Virgil and seen how it's meant to be done, and he is honouring the great tradition. But there's one big twist, and that is that Milton is trying to write a Christian epic. And there is a tension here because he's clearly a fan of what he would call pagan mythology and tales of heroism, which isn't really compatible with his Puritan Christian faith. Not to mention awkward questions such as, what does he think he's doing invoking a heathen muse for his Christian epic? So maybe Milton was human after all. So turning to today's passage, I've picked one of my favourite bits of Paradise Lost, the creation of the world from Book 7. He's drawing on the biblical account, the creation of the world in seven days in the book of Genesis. And the original text is wonderfully terse. In the King James Bible, which was published in 1611 when Milton was just a toddler, the creation of the land animals on the sixth day is described in just 64 words. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And Milton includes this biblical account and follows the wording of the King James very closely. When God said, Let the earth bring forth soul living in her kind, cattle and creeping things, and beast of the earth, each in their kind. So that's the setup, if you like, the command of God from the King James Bible. And if you recall, Malika Booker, back in episode 25, pointed out that you don't get much more patriarchal than the King James Bible. So this is definitely God with masculine pronouns. But in Milton's poem, we also get the response to the command, which doesn't appear in the Bible. The earth obeyed, and straight opening, her fertile womb teemed at a birth in numerous living creatures. In the Bible, the creatures are made by God. It says, and God made the beast of the earth, and so on. But here, Milton describes them as emerging from the earth, opening her fertile womb. So there's no doubting the feminine character of the earth. And as we saw back in episode 24 about D.H. Lawrence's poem Hummingbird, there is an ancient tradition of personifying Mother Earth as a female deity. And Milton, being the incredibly learned poet that he was, would certainly have been aware of this. And being the puritanical, patriarchal Christian that he was, he would have officially disapproved of it and relegated it to the ages of darkness and ignorance. But for Milton the poet, this is clearly a deeply resonant image, 
and he responds to God's command with a spectacular sequence of poetry, elaborating on the biblical text in loving detail with the descriptions of all the different creatures and their emergence from the earth. The earth obeyed, and straight opening, her fertile womb teemed at a birth in numerous living creatures, perfect forms limbed and full-grown. Out of the ground uprose as from his lair the wild beast, where he wands in forest wild, in thicket, brake, or den. Among the trees in pairs they rose, they walked, the cattle in the fields and meadows green. Those rare and solitary, these in flocks, pasturing at once and in broad herds upsprung. As you can hear, Milton uses considerably more than 64 words, and I've only got room today for an excerpt from the whole description. The passage actually goes on to describe the creation of lizards and serpents and ants and bees. So, what we've got here is Milton's Baroque fantasia on the book of Genesis. One creature after another rises up out of the earth to form a kind of 17th century bestiary, starting with the wild beast, whatever that was, then the cattle in the fields, the lion, the ounce, which was a lynx, the libard, which was the leopard, the tiger, the stag, Behemoth, which was a gigantic creature mentioned in the book of Job. Scholars think Milton probably meant an elephant. Then flocks of sheep, the river horse, which was the hippopotamus, and the scaly crocodile. And I get the same kind of pleasure from reading this as I used to get when I was very small and I was looking at the illustrations of animals on my bedroom wall. You know, the lions and monkeys and tigers and whatever. And, and I think I can detect Milton taking an innocent pleasure in listing the animals and describing them. Have a listen to the lion. Now half appeared the tawny lion, pawing to get free his hinder parts, then springs as broke from bonds, and rampant shakes his brinded mane. Isn't this just delightful? So we can really see the lion popping out head first, then shaking his back legs to free them from the earth. And then he springs as broke from bonds. The alliteration really puts a spring in his step. And then the lion rampant shakes his brinded mane. Rampant was a technical term from heraldry. A lion rampant is a specific pose, standing up on its hind legs with its claws outstretched. You can see it on the royal banner of Scotland. Brindled means the lion's mane was streaked or flecked with different colours. It's a really vivid visual description, and I find myself poring over the individual creatures in Book 7 the way I used to pore over the pictures of the animals on my bedroom wall. And part of the effect comes from Milton's very skillful handling of the verse form. So, if you were reading this passage on the page, you would see that the grassy clods now carved, now half appeared, is a single line. So ending it on now half appeared creates a mini cliffhanger as we wonder momentarily what has half appeared. 
It's only at the start of the next line that we learn it is the tawny lion. So, this is the technique of enjambment, which we've looked at quite a lot on this podcast, where the grammatical phrase spills over from one line to another. And it's used by poets for all kinds of effects. One way Milton uses it in this passage is to show the animals appearing out of the earth one after another, like rabbits popping out of hats. So, going back to the beginning of the description of the teeming earth. The earth obeyed, and straight opening, her fertile womb, teemed at a birth in numerous living creatures, perfect forms limbed and full-grown. Out of the ground uprose as from his lair the wild beast. Teemed at birth is the end of a line. So there's, again, there's that little moment of surprise when innumerous living creatures pop out at the start of the next line. Then we have out of the ground uprose, ending another line, only for the wild beast to appear in the following line. Shortly afterwards, we get... Among the trees in pairs they rose, they walked. Which, of course, has the effect of prompting us to ask, Pray, tell us, John, what rose and walked among the trees in pairs? And Milton obligingly tells us in the next line, The cattle in the fields and meadows green. And the birth by enjambment continues, with the libard, the stag's head, behemoth, and the river horse all popping up at the start of a line and resolving the syntax Milton has left dangling at the end of the previous line. And in perhaps my favourite enjambment of all, he says that the animals appear out of the earth like the mole, line break, rising. And this is just one aspect of Milton's technique, which takes the blank verse that we've been discussing for the past couple of months to a whole new level, doing things unattempted yet in poetry, even by Shakespeare. For one thing, Shakespeare and his fellow dramatists were writing verse to be spoken aloud by actors. But subtle effects like these little surprising enjambments are more noticeable on the page than in the ear. And unlike Shakespeare, who famously never published his own plays, Milton sold Paradise Lost to a publisher. So he may well have been writing with a reader in mind rather than an audience. So just to recap, blank verse is unrhymed iambic pentameter. Titum, 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 titum. And blank verse was very congenial to Milton. Because if you recall, the blank part of blank verse means it doesn't rhyme. And Milton thoroughly approved of not rhyming. In his introduction to Paradise Lost, he described his blank verse as English heroic verse without rhyme, and said that rhyme was no necessary adjunct or true ornament of poem or good verse, but rather the invention of a barbarous age, and he dismissed it as the jingling sound of like endings. So he was even a Puritan when it came to versification. Obviously, the pleasure of rhyme was just a bit too close to cakes and ale for his liking. 
A couple of months ago, if you recall, we looked at Christopher Marlowe's early Elizabethan blank verse, where the end of most of the lines coincided neatly with the end of a phrase. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? So it's pretty easy for us to hear where the first line ends and the second one begins, even though we can't see the text. Then last month, we heard a speech by Shakespeare, where he was in using enjambment much more extensively, and also often starting phrases and sentences in the middle of lines. So the blank verse became much more flexible and emotionally expressive, which obviously had big advantages for writing drama. And what Milton does is he takes that basic principle from Shakespeare, the beginning and end of a phrase don't have to coincide with the beginning and end of a line. And he takes it to extremes. So at the start of today's passage from Paradise Lost, the first four and a half lines are a single sentence. The sixth and of creation last arose with evening harps and matin when God said... Let the earth bring forth soul, living in her kind, cattle and creeping things, and beast of the earth, each in their kind. And you can hear that the syntax is far from straightforward and simple, even in what for Milton is a relatively short sentence. But Milton's just warming up here. The next sentence is nine and a half lines long, and the one after that, going all the way to the scaly crocodile at the end of today's passage, is 12 lines. He piles on clause after clause with inversions and digressions and expansions, punctuated by commas and colons and semicolons, so it's really hard to keep up and make sense of exactly what he's saying. Quite often you think he means one thing and then you read on and discover that that what you thought was a subject was actually an object, or an adjective you thought was attached to one noun actually belongs to another, and so on. So don't worry if you get confused or if you lose the thread from time to time. That's par for the course with Milton. (laughs) And he'd struggle to get away with it these days. You know, the famous guidebook, The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, always tells us to write as simply and clearly as possible. (laughs) This is Strunk and White's worst nightmare. If you pasted this into Grammarly, it would tell you this is really bad writing because it's so hard to read. But of course, it's no such thing. This is amazing writing. And one thing that makes it amazing is this incredible syntax that is unfolding and unravelling before our eyes. And what it's doing in this passage is it's mirroring the action of the teeming earth that's throwing up one new species after another. The effect is a bit like a panning shot in a movie where we see one species after another appearing and shaking itself free and starting to roam across the landscape. The ounce, the libard and the tiger, as the mole rising, the crumbled earth above them threw in hillocks. The swift stag from underground bore up his branching head. Scarce from his mould, Behemoth, biggest born of earth, upheaved his vastness. Fleeced the flocks and bleating rose as plants. 
ambiguous between sea and land, the river horse and scaly crocodile. It does sound magnificent, doesn't it? Partly, it's the hypnotic effect of the regular metre, the beat of the blank verse. And partly, it's from the sense unfolding with the convoluted syntax. And partly, of course, it's from the interplay of the metre and the syntax, which reaches a high point with Milton. And it's hard to see how anyone could take this kind of complexity much further. Last month, I compared Christopher Marlowe's blank verse with its neatly end-stop lines to a marble staircase. By contrast, I said Shakespeare's blank verse, with its phrases starting in the middle of the lines and running over the line endings, is more like a spiral staircase, where it feels like one step is always turning into another one as you descend it. For Milton's blank verse, the image that comes into my mind is a swiftly rushing mountain stream, being diverted and divided by the rocks it encounters on its downward journey, occasionally cascading from a great height, then collecting in a pool and rushing onwards once again. On one level, I think we're meant to feel overwhelmed by the sheer abundance, the fecundity of Milton's verbal imagination. But also, as we've seen, to really grasp what Milton's saying and to appreciate the subtlety of his effects, you really need to see the text and read it. Because it's impossible to take it all in with your ears the first time you hear it read aloud. So we've moved from the age of blank verse spoken on a stage to blank verse printed on a page. If Milton will forgive me a little rhyme. And remember, Milton had famously gone blind by the time he wrote Paradise Lost, and he had to dictate the whole poem to his assistants. So how on earth he managed to hold all of this in his mind without being able to see it is anyone's guess. He claimed it was dictated to him by his celestial patroness, the Muse. So the simplest explanation is the most outrageous one. His appeal to the muse worked, and we are in the presence of a work of divine genius. The sixth, and of creation last, arose with evening harps and matin, when God said, Let the earth bring forth soul, living in her kind, cattle and creeping things, and beast of the earth, each in their kind. The earth obeyed, and straight opening, her fertile womb, teemed at a birth in numerous living creatures, perfect forms limbed and full-grown. Out of the ground uprose as from his lair the wild beast, where he wands in forest wild, in thicket, brake, or den. Among the trees in pairs they rose, they walked, the cattle in the fields and meadows green, those rare and solitary, these in flocks, pasturing at once, and in broad herds upsprung. 
The grassy clods now carved, now half appeared the tawny lion, pawing to get free his hinder parts, then springs as broke from bonds and rampant shakes his brinded mane. The ounce, the libard and the tiger, as the mole rising, the crumbled earth above them threw in hillocks. The swift stag from underground bore up his branching head. Scarce from his mould, Behemoth, biggest born of earth, upheaved his vastness. Fleeced the flocks and bleating rose as plants. Ambiguous between sea and land, the river horse and scaly crocodile. John Milton was an English poet, polemicist and civil servant who was born in 1608 and died in 1674. Prodigiously learned, he composed poetry in Latin and Italian as well as English and he could also read Greek, Hebrew, French, Spanish, Old English and Dutch. He took the side of Parliament in the English Civil War and was a civil servant for the Commonwealth of England under Cromwell. He was an outspoken prose writer who defended the execution of Charles I as well as the principle of free speech in the Commonwealth. Early in his career, he mastered a wide range of verse forms and became well known for works including Lycidas and Comus. By the time he came to write Paradise Lost, in the reign of Charles II, he was blind, impoverished and out of favour. But he persisted and produced what is generally considered one of the greatest works of world literature. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>